My dear brethren and sisters in Christ Jesus our Lord, young people, the book of Nehemiah is an inspired and outstanding record of devotion and dedication to the things of God. Therefore it is very important that we who stand at the end of the times should not only understand this book, but be strengthened and stimulated by the principles that it contains and the direction that it can give us. It is preeminently the book for our times. Through its chapters we have powerful and wonderful exaltation. We have the description of exciting events as Nehemiah laboured in the things of God. We have tremendous, tremendous challenges shown to us and thrilling successes and triumphs as he sees the work of God prosper under the blessing of his father and his own labours. And yet it is more than merely a book of the past, a story of history. It's the greatest success story of all time, especially in respect to ecclesial and personal devotion. Because it is, brethren and sisters, a parable of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ himself with us, with his ecclesia, in the midst of trial and opposition and difficulty, both within and without. It's the story of courage. It's the story of faith. It's the story of perseverance through to the victories and trials in spite of the opposition and challenge of enemies. And thus it provides us with a wonderful example that we can take to ourselves, that we can emulate in our personal challenge against sin, as well as in the ecclesial situations in which we live. And thus we have in this wonderful little book lessons which can, we can inculcate into our ecclesial association together and our individual lives before our Father. This book tells of two prominent brethren, it tells of the special ecclesial effort that they develop between themselves, cooperating one with another. We have before us the man Nehemiah. His name means the consolation of Yah. And he had a helper whose name was Ezra, and his name means help. They cooperated together. This man who stood up as the consolation of Yahweh, and this man whose name means help. And in this story we have the outline, the epistle of the help and consolation of God. They were a living testimony of that power. They reveal that Yahweh is ever present to those who would rest upon him and seek his help and his consolation. And they revealed what can be done when problems are met with faith and courage and prayer and determination. And yet at the very beginning of this record, Nehemiah reminds us of his heritage. The words of Nehemiah, verse 1, the son of Hakaliah. And the word Hakaliah, his father's name means Yahweh has hidden. So here, here at the very outset was a situation where the consolation of Yahweh he has hidden. And that's the attitude of Nehemiah as he comes to commence the record of this, of this book and to describe the terrible situation in which the brotherhood was found in his day because Yahweh had hidden his face from them. And yet the book records one of, the, one of the most remarkable and dramatic religious revivals in history. When the ecclesia was resurrected, as it were, out of the dust of their despair and despondency. And it shows the close attention to detail that is required for spiritual success, whether that be in the ecclesia or whether that be in our own personal lives. The book of Nehemiah is part of a tri trio of books, a trio of history books of the Restoration. That combination commenced with the book of Ezra, 
where he describes the restoration from captivity, the bringing back from exile, the preparation. And then you have the book of Nehemiah where there is a story of the reconstruction of from ruin as you have firstly preparation, then presentation. And finally we come to the lovely story of Esther, that beautiful daughter of God whose history records the preservation from threat. And here we have the trio of lovely books, the history books of the restoration, the reviving, the resurrection, as we have the story of preparation and presentation and preservation. It's the story of the judgment seat and the gift and granting of life eternal. So the book of Nehemiah we come to this week, brethren and sisters, that we might enjoy our experience with this great man. It's going to be for us a series of investigations into the official papers of the king. For Nehemiah was representing the court of Persia. He was under authority of the great king of all the earth at that time. And this book is a record, his official record, of his duties on behalf of the king. It records the incidents that he found when he was directed back to the land of his fathers. It records his hopes, his desires, his fears and his impressions. The view of a governor as he looks upon his ecclesia. But within this historical narrative, underneath that, there is the expressions of Nehemiah himself as though we would have an insight into the feelings and emotions of our Lord Jesus Christ, who of course is the greater than Nehemiah. And so in chapter 5 and verse 19, you have this constant repetition throughout this book of this expression. Nehemiah 5 verse 19, Think upon me, O my God, for good according to all that I have done for this people. And I would earnestly suggest that as we read through the book of Nehemiah that you colour in, you, you um, make a feature in your Bible of the constant times that Nehemiah uses that expression. Think upon me, O God, for good. It's his staccato prayer. It appears time and again throughout this official record as he pleads for God to look down upon him and help him as he expresses his feelings. So he has a plea that God would overlook his failings and remember his good works. It's the prayer, the daily prayer of the true servant of God. And thus as you go to chapter 1 and verse 4 you see Nehemiah as a man of deep emotion, a man of tremendous care and concern for his people, of understanding of the weaknesses and the needs of each of us. For in verse 4 of chapter 1 it says that it came to pass when I heard the words of the report from the faraway country that his brother had conveyed to him that I sat down and wept and mourned and fasted and prayed. And that was his emotions, his feelings, as a report came to him from the ecclesial environment that was so far away from him in those days. As sometimes perhaps our Lord expresses the same emotion as he looks upon the brotherhood from the reports that come to him through he- into his position of authority in heaven. I mourned and I wept and I sat down and I fasted and I prayed. This book, brethren and sisters, records the last historical event of the Old Testament. The last historical event of the Old Testament, and thus it's a very dramatic time, as Yahweh was going to bring about a period of silence before the advent of his Lord, of his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ himself. And notice in chapter 13 of this book, Notice what the last uh, historical event was. When we come to chapter 13 of the, of the book of Nehemiah, and at verse 28, 
He records what the last event in the Old Testament history was about. One of the sons of Joadah, the son of Elisha, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sambalat the Horonite. Absolute apostasy. The world had crashed in on the Ecclesia. It was the son of Joadah, the son of Elisha, the, the high priest, God's representative of that age. He was son-in-law to Sambalat, God's enemy, the Horonite. Therefore, says Nehemiah, I chased him from thee. And that's the last event. He chased him out of the temple. And the next incident in the scriptural record, brethren and sisters, is the birth of one who was to be the high priest. In the little town of Bethlehem, when wise men, the Magi from the east came and said, where is he who is born king of the Jews? King priest. The last prayer of Nehemiah, the last prayer of the Old Testament is in verse 31. When he speaks about the wood offering at the times appointed and the first fruits, and then the last prayer of the Old Testament as the history closes is this, Remember me, O my God, for good. Remember me, O God, for good. And when you go over to the words of John the Apostle, to the last prayer of the New Testament, when the scriptures were to close for 2,000 years, in Revelation chapter 22 and at verse 21 he says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Remember me, my God, for good, let his grace be upon us, his favour, his concern of the Lord Jesus be with us. So we have a remarkable circumstance where this book, this book of Nehemiah, brings us right into our own times as we await the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The record itself is divided into two parts. We have from chapters 1 to 6, the reconstruction of the wall of the city. And from chapters 7 to 13, the reinstruction of the people. The reconstruction of the wall, the reinstruction of the people. So Nehemiah comes to us as both a builder and a governor. He was a true leader because he protected the people and he strengthened the people. He provided the opportunity, as did Joshua of old, and strengthened the people as they laboured before him. He was like our Lord Jesus Christ, who has done the very same thing. He was not a half man. He was a full man. He was a true leader. And there's been many men in this world who have been a genius in a crisis, but have failed in the work of following up. You remember Sir Winston Churchill, an outstanding leader of the British people in the crisis of World War II, but an absolute failure when it came to rescuing that country from the economical crisis that followed it. But not this man, he was thorough. He was a God's man. And he laboured and cooperated with his God. That made him the whole man that he was. So he, defended the, he built up and defended the walls of the city and he then gave knowledge that would protect his people. It's as though he was providing a statement of faith that protects the city and then the individual application that strengthens us within that foundation. And we must follow the footsteps of this man spiritually as we see him going about in his ecclesial activities, in his work of faith. Thus we can profit, brethren and sisters, from the methods that he, lay, he employed. That we might strengthen ourselves and those with us as we await the coming of the great high priest. Ezra and Nehemiah were the models of good reformers. They saw the task that lay before them that they had to accomplish and the special 
um, remedies that were necessary. And in accomplishing that, they allowed nothing at all to deter their, their objectives. They refused to allow problems to circumvent their determination. They knew what they had to do, and they went ahead and did it, and do it. And furthermore, they asked their fellows to bear no burdens or to undertake no tasks that they were not prepared to do themselves. So they were like our Lord Jesus Christ who said to his disciples, you follow my steps. Because whatever he's asked us to do, he's done first. We must follow his steps. We don't go ahead, brethren and sisters, we follow him. And so Nehemiah filled the others of his ecclesia with enthusiasm because they, Ezra and Nehemiah, were enthusiastic themselves. And that was, in, that was contagious. It's strange, isn't it, that in our human nature both enthusiasm and despondency are contagious. And if we are enthusiastic and, and stimulated in, by the things of the truth, if we bubble over, as the psalmist says in Psalm 45, if we bubble over about a good thing, then people are stimulated with us. But if we are despondent and we see all the problems and all the difficulties and our heads are sunk and under that circumstance, then that is affecting other people. What made Nehemiah so enthusiastic? It was because he drew God into his, the circumstances of his life. His life. He was preeminently a man of prayer. And as you read through this little book, you find constantly prayer flowing from his lips. He expresses them in a very brief form. But he is like our Lord Jesus, though we read so few of his personal prayers. Yet of Ovid it is recorded of him that he spent all night in prayer to his father. And injected into the gospel records is that instruction of the constant prayer that our Lord Jesus had with his father in all circumstances as did Nehemiah. And we'll see that as we proceed this week. So Nehemiah saw the father in the heavens as great and terrible and he expresses that in his prayers yet at the same time abounding in mercy and concern. Behold, says Nehemiah, behold the goodness and the severity of God. Romans chapter 11, verse 22. And so he believed implicitly in the power of God in his life, his, the divine influence in his life. And that's something, brethren and sisters, that we lack in this 20th century of ours. We're so busy about life, it's so precious, as time races by us, that so constantly prayer is excluded. It ought not to be. It wasn't in the days of Brother Thomas and Brother Roberts, as they found the circumstances of their lower, a slower life, upon horseback, or in carriage, or walking the streets of the cities, they found time for meditation and thoughtful contemplation. We must recognise the difficulties of the pressures of life and fight against them and bring prayer into our lives like this man did. Why, in chapter 2 and verse 8, he said that God could move the heart of a king. He says at the end of verse 8, And the king granted me according to the good hand of my God upon me. When he got the authority and credentials from the king that he might go back and do certain work, he recognised that that was the work of God, acting upon the heart of the king. He saw God in all the circumstances of his life. Chapter 2, verse 12. God gave wisdom. Neither told I any man what God had put into my heart to do at Jerusalem. It wasn't his work, it was God's. And thus he recognised that the knowledge and the ability and the circumstance and the wisdom came from God. His word was in Nehemiah. And he honoured and, and acknowledged that. 
and God can grant us prosperity. So in chapter 2 and verse 20, the God of heaven, he will prosper us, he will grant us our, our needs, therefore we his servants will arise and build. Our God will prosper us in our work. In chapter 4 verse 15, God baffles the designs of the enemy. It came to pass when our enemies heard that it was known unto us that God had brought their counsel to naught. It wasn't Nehemiah's skill. It wasn't his cleverness in the way he had organised things. Although that was, that is obvious. But Nehemiah recognised that it was God that allowed this and that had fought unseen, unheard, but very obvious. And in chapter 5, verse 19, he acknowledges that God rewards faithfulness. Think upon me, O my God, for good, according to all that I have done. Because Nehemiah had laid the basis for God's providence, his faithfulness. He had laid the basis in his labours that God might reward him, as also must we, if we would stand approved at the judgment seat. And then finally in chapter 12, and these are only some of the examples, in chapter 12 and verse 43, God had caused the people to rejoice. Also that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced, for God had made them to rejoice with great joy, the wives and the children together. It was a time when, at long last, the people were able to joy in their wonderful circumstances. We will, brethren and sisters, when we stand with our Lord on the hills of Jerusalem, on Zion's hill, where the king shall reign gloriously, it will be our God that has caused this, as we see those wonderful circumstances in this little type here of that moment. But not only was Nehemiah a man of prayer, and that was the first essential that he recognised, he was also a man of action. He didn't sit supinely by. He didn't say, well, God is great and powerful and mighty. I will sit me down here and pray and trust. He didn't do that. He was a man of action. He got things done. He recognised that pulling God into his life required him that he act with God in cooperation. And so in chapter 2 of Nehemiah, he reviews the walls himself. In chapter 3 of this book, he builds together with the people. Ah, Nehemiah wasn't like a Pharisee. He wasn't like that man of whom Charles Dickens wrote in one of his novels, Pecksniff, who was a lamppost, he said. He was a lamppost. He was always pointing the way, but never going there himself. And that's where he stopped, on the street corner. He never went down any further. But Nehemiah was not a lamppost. He was not saying, do that. He said, come along with me and we'll do it together as he worked and laboured with his people. And in chapter 5, he acts instantly, as we shall see, to relieve the poverty of his people. In chapter 13, he contends vigorously with those that are astray. And he personally flings the household goods of the enemy out into the street when the enemy had polluted the temple. He cast the goods of the enemy out of the temple into the streets. It was as though he got a, a, whip of, a whip and with that he cast the money changers and the, those that sold and, and uh, brought doves and he cast them out of the temple as he enacted the work of our Lord who himself was preeminently a man of action as well as prayer. So this man, Nehemiah, he would brook no opposition when the cause of the truth is to be served. So he was a man of prayer, and he was a man of action, and he was also a man of vision, a man of opportunity. He didn't put a veil upon his eyes, he watched all the circumstances of the ecclesial work. He believed implicitly in the providence of God, 
He could see that which was unseen. He could see God in life. He could see how the Almighty had manipulated the affairs of his life and then he seized the means that God had provided into his hands. So he was aware of opportunity, aware of experience and he grasped at those opportunities when there came a moment of petition to the king. And he used the circumstances at hand to defeat the intrigues of Sambalat. And he sought the presence of the highly respected Ezra on one occasion to enforce the law as he saw it was necessary. Who had put the king there? Who had required Sambalat to be there? How did Ezra to still be alive? God had. And Nehemiah took those circumstances and used them. And so as we look at this narrative, we will see characteristics of this man that we must emulate as we continue his work, his very valuable work. We'll see his faith, brethren and sisters, that was matched by courage. He worked and he fought. We'll see how clear-sighted he was, that he saw problems and he acted instantly. He perceived the hypocrisy of his enemies. So he was faithful, he was courageous, he was clear-sighted, and he was forthright in his speaking. He spoke what he meant. He spoke plain, plainly and to the point. He expressed his beliefs, his feelings, his opinions openly. One knew where he stood with Nehemiah, the man of God. There was no guile or subtlety in his voice. When he was reviled, he, he reviled not a, with, there was, in uh, the second of Peter chapter 3, I've just forgotten how the words start. Uh, sec, uh, first of Peter, I'm sorry. Just take that off the tape, all those amenars. First of Peter chapter 2. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Neither was guile found. He was, not uh, he was not speaking in duplicity. He spoke openly, courageously, forthrightly. And above it all, brethren and sisters, he was God-honouring. And as he stood before his people, they saw in him a representative of his God. He never stooped to underhand methods. What he did was what God would have done. And though he was surrounded by characters who were not like-minded, Nehemiah stood head and shoulders above them all in his faith. Notice, for example, in chapter 4, his determination as he records it here. When problems were great, both within and without, facing him on all sides, challenging him, disturbing the quietness of the ecclesia, when his enemies ridiculed him in verses 1 to 3, when Sambalat heard that we builded the wall, he was wroth, and he took great indignation, and he mocked the Jews, and he spake before his brethren and the army of Samaria, and said, What do these feeble Jews? Will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish which are, built, uh, uh, which are burned? The challenge, the ridicule, the 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 uh, the, um, the challenge and the ridicule of the enemies, and he answered that challenge and that uh, scorn. He answered it by prayer and work. Verse four: Hear, O our God. And verse six: So we built the wall. Faith and work. And when there was a challenge, the threat of force, as you have it in verses 7 and 8, when Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabians and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites, and the whole world, as it were, heard that the walls of Jerusalem were made up, the breaches began to be stopped, they were very wroth and conspired all of them together. A great confederacy of nations. Ezekiel chapter 38. So they all conspired together. How did Nehemiah handle that? 
when the threat of force was uh, issued, he answered that by prayer and vigilance. Verse 9. Nevertheless, we made our prayer toward our God. Verse 10. And Judah said, uh, sorry, verse 9, and a watch against them day and night. Prayer and a watch. Prayer and vigilance was the answer to force. And then when he was faced with the weariness of his own members, of his own labourers, as you have it in verses 10 and 11, Judah said, the strength of the bearer of burdens is decayed and there is so much rubbish. We're not able to build the wall. The problems that you great, Nehemiah, give us a little relief from this constant concern for the work. And when he was faced with that problem, he answered it by an organised offence and by encouragement in verse 14. Then I looked and I rose up and I said to the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember Yahweh. He's great and terrible. And fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your houses. Be courageous and fight. As he went about the people encouraging them and strengthening, strengthening them and stirring them up. And at all times, there was that man. He never seemed to sleep at night. It was as though he was in the mountain with his God always. As he laboured onwards, in, 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 without, refusing to defeat, refusing to give up, there was Nehemiah always. Like Gideon, faint but pursuing, continuing on until the very end. He that endureth to the end, brethren and sisters, that's the one that's going to be saved. And we don't have very great, very much longer, do we? Shall we give up, rest a while, and labour? Rest from our labour? What as the Apostle Paul says in Hebrews chapter 4, let us labour to enter into the Sabbath when it comes. And so this man was lifting everyone up by, to greater efforts by his own tireless zeal, by his enthusiasm, an example of great encouragement to each other. And so in chapter 4 and verse 23, So neither I, nor my brethren, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard which followed me, none of us put off our clothes, save that everyone put them off for washing. None of us discarded our duty when it was needed. We maintained the fight unto the end. We took up the sword of the Spirit, and we continued unto the end. I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Apostle Paul to Timothy in the second book, chapter 4. Therefore, the Lord has, has a crown of righteousness for me, and not only me, but all them also that love his appearing. Neither I, nor my brethren, nor the servants, nor the men of the guard which followed me, none of us discarded our duty. But in the next chapter, he has some trouble. He has some trouble with the wealthy nobles. The very ones that refused to, to labour with Nehemiah, the very ones that refused to work themselves in the ecclesial activities, were oppressing the poor, were lay, laying on people grievous burdens too grievous to be borne. And Nehemiah recognised that problem and he handled the matter vigorously. In chapter 5 verse 19, he presented his actions as an offering to God. Think upon me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done unto this people. He had to bear with the guile, brethren and sisters. He had to suffer the hypocrisy, the, the scorn and ridicule of Sambalat, the enemy, who pretended that he wanted to be friends with Nehemiah. He offered the opportunity of a conference let us consider these things together, Nehemiah, you and me. I mean, we're all creatures of God. Let, let's, let's join together that we might come to some common and pleasing circumstance. Oh, Nehemiah could see through him. 
Nehemiah could see through that guile, just as the Lord could see through the guile of Judas. He didn't want to sell that bottle of ointment to give to the poor. That ointment that the wonderful woman Mary had given to his, her Lord against his burial, he didn't want to give it to the poor, he wanted it for himself. And we've got to recognise when people comp- desire us to compromise our position in the truth, it's for their own aggrandizement, their own benefit. And Nehemiah saw that. Nehemiah knew that Sanballat actually wanted to assassinate him, a knife in the back as it were. And Nehemiah returned in chapter 6 and verse 3, returned a classic answer. I sent messengers unto them, saying, I am doing a great work. I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and come down to you? We're occupied in the work of our Master, our Lord Jesus Christ. We do not have time to... to compromise our position, to discuss irrelevant matters with enemies. What better answer is this, that Nehemiah provides for us, brethren and sisters, against all the provocations that a man might receive to remit his work and to enter into fruitless controversy. There is too great a work that we're involved in. We've got walls to build, people to help, an ecclesia to strengthen, a brotherhood to encourage. We can't be dilly-dallying and messing around with the words of enemies. I'm doing a great work. That should be our prayer at always. Why should I come down and leave that work to talk to others? That's the complete reply. To insinuations and accusations that others might uh, express against you. The answer to all such criticisms is work and labour for the truth. Work and prayer. That's the answer. When some impute to us motives in the labour of the truth, tell them, I am doing a good work. In chapter 6 and verse 5, Nehemiah's reply was, was followed by an insulting letter. Then sent Sanballat his servant unto me, in like manner, the fifth time with an open letter in his hand. A newspaper. A letter to Nehemiah that he seemed to drop copies off on every corner, so that other people would read it. Wherein it was written, it is reported among the heathen, and uh, Gashmu said it, that, the Jew, that thou, Nehemiah, and the Jews think to rebel, for which cause thou buildest the wall, that thou mayest be their king, according to these words. Oh, there was an imputation of motive. And it wasn't merely like Matthew chapter 18, where we go and tell another of our problem with him privately. No, Sam Ballard had a big placard built, a, a, a big placard drawn up, to Nehemiah, this is what you want to be, king. And he pre- presented him that, that uh, thing. It was evidence, brethren and sisters, of a, of a treachery of a so-called friend here, a man, Shemaiah. And in verses 17 to 19 of this chapter, it was followed by the base deceit of nobles who conspired with Tobiah, his enemy. Verse 17, Moreover, in those days the nobles of Judah sent many letters unto Tobiah, and the letters of Tobiah came to them. Oh, here's a conspiracy for you. Here's, here's a lot of publications. Here's production. For there were many in Judah sworn unto him, because he was son-in-law to Shechaniah, the son of a- Ara and his son Johanan had, been, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. And they reported his good deeds before me and uttered my words unto him. And Tobiah sent letters to get me in fear. All the intrigues of people when marriage situations arise. And yet despite all this, and we'll discuss this later during this week, God willing, despite all this, the work continued. Wars were built. 
Slowly but surely, walls were built and people were strengthened and instructed and the work was completed. And near the end of this book, Nehemiah returns to Persia as chapter 12 concludes. Busy once again. The message of Malachi appears between chapters 12 and 13. Malachi the prophet's voice sounded forth while Nehemiah was absent. His message was spurned. There were only a few then in those days who feared Yahweh and thought upon his name and Yahweh heard that and he remembered and he wrote his official record then. A book of remembrance was written up for those who thought upon his name and honoured and revered it. But for the great majority of the brotherhood the law was relaxed and the truth was polluted and the separation was destroyed. And Nehemiah was absent while that was going on. Truth polluted. Separation with the world destroyed, torn down. The building was removed. And when Nehemiah returned the second time to his people, he didn't bring a message of, of the building again. He brought a message of judgment. He saw what would happen upon the basis of his work before and his judgment was direct and vigorous. He was like a nobleman who had returned from a far country, the type of the Lord Jesus Christ that he would inspect how people have acted in his absence. As we do today, the nobleman has gone into a far country. We're waiting for him to return. So in verse 6 of Nehemiah chapter 13, in all this time I was not at Jerusalem. For in the two and thirtieth year of Artaxerxes king of Babylon came I unto the king and after certain days I obtained leave of the king and I came to Jerusalem and I understood of the evil that Eliashib, the high priest, the high priest, the evil that Eliashib did for Tobiah in preparing him a chamber in the courts of the house of God and it grieved me sore, therefore I cast forth the household stuff of Tobiah out of the chamber and I commanded them, they cleansed the chambers thither brought I again the vessels of the house of God with a meat offering and the frankincense. That's the judgment seat. There's Sinai. We shall all appear before the judgment seat of our God to receive in body according to those things that we have done, whether good or bad. Second Corinthians 5, 9 and 10. We shall appear. Here he has come back. What is our state, brethren and sisters, as we are labouring in the walls of the ecclesial city? Will it be judgment, purging, final cleansing of the body? We need to enter into this final prayer of the of Nehemiah as he expresses it in verse 31. Remember me, O my God, for good. We've got to provide good that God might recognise that. That we might not be with Eliashib and Tobiah and all the evil that they had done in the courts of the house of God so our studies are going to take us deeper into the experiences of this man to hear his message, to observe his mission and to consider the details of this wonderful book, this thrilling message of hope and glory as we build the walls. The book of Nehemiah, as we have said, is divided into two sections. It records, firstly, the work of God's enthusiastic servant, in two principles, two advents to Jerusalem. The first six chapters <coughs> outline for us the reconstruction of the walls, the physical building up of the defences of faith that were provided and necessary before the Ecclesia could be strengthened. So in chapter 1 we have an inquiry, an intercession for God, uh, to God concerning this project. That's the first thing we must always remember when we set about a project. Chapter 1, intercession 
and inquiry to God. Chapter 2, there's an expedition to Jerusalem. Nehemiah leaves the place of his, of his residence that he might go to the site, go to the place, go to Jerusalem and commence an exhortation to build. Chapter 3 is the project and the work of the truth commences. We enter with Nehemiah upon the actual work, see what he did, how he did it. But in chapter 4, the project is disturbed. The Samaritan opposition. The Samaritans speak of the Gentile elements, foreign elements, elements outside the brotherhood, outside the walls. Their opposition is felt as the project is disturbed. But in chapter 5, worse, brethren and sisters, worse in chapter 5, you've got the project disrupted, not now by the Gentiles, not now by foreigners, but by the oppression of fellow Jews from within. The brethren of Nehemiah disrupt the project. But thanks be to his work, to the work of faith, the faithful pioneer brethren such as Nehemiah, thanks to his work in chapter 6, the project is completed and the walls are built and the protection is provided and people can find themselves within those walls as the brotherhood is thus strengthened. Now in chapter 7 to 13, he now looks inside the walls at the ecclesia, at the people, and he involves himself in the reinstruction of the nation. In chapter 7, there is a re-registering the remnant of those who returned. Everyone is named. The names are properly recorded, providing a good foundation of faith. This man was born in Zion. Our credentials are thus provided us when we go through the waters of baptism and our name is recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life. That's chapter 7. In chapter 8 there is a re-inculcating of the law. Instruction in the truth. As Nehemiah now having recorded the names of those on the ecclesial roll as it were, now provides them instruction, edification and learning. Chapter 8. Chapter 9 is the re-consecration of the people. He sets to strengthen them by words of exhortation. He seeks a revival of the covenant in prayer. He provides for the opportunity that people can see their need to re-consecrate themselves. And then in chapter 10, there is a reconfirming of the covenant. We meet them around the table of the Lord, as it were. We meet them in the house of our God. Notice verse 32, the service of the house of our God Verse 33 at the end, the work of the house of our God. Verse 34, an offering in the house of our God. Verse 36, flocks in the house of our God. Priests ministering in the house of our God. Verse 37, the chambers of the house of our God. Verse 38, the tithes in the house of our God. And at the end of verse 39, we will not forsake the house of our God. The covenant is reconfirmed. The value of ecclesial labour is restated. We've got a labour in the house of our God because that's where we meet with our God as we do around the table of memory and remembrance. And then in verse 11 there's gospel proclamation work. There's repopulating the city. As he sees the need to draw in those who are labouring into the precincts of the ecclesial work, the city of Jerusalem. There's repopulation needed. Brethren and sisters are given opportunity to labour together in the things of the truth. And and in chapter 13, I'm sorry, in chapter, that was chapter 11, did I say chapter 12? 
I said chapter 11. That was, I'm sorry, verse 11. Well, it should have been chapter 11. And chapter 12, we come to the rededicating of the walls of the city. Establishing and restating both the foundation and the defence of our faith. Seeing the need to strengthen our leaders, our, our brethren who are serving, to establish those principles. For at the end of chapter 12, as we remember, Nehemiah returns to the king's right hand in glory in a far country. And then in chapter 13, as the book concludes, we come to the correction of abuses and the return and judgment of the governor. We await that time in our, our own lives when our Lord, knowing the abuses, some of which we cannot ourselves correct, he will come and judge us, for he seeth not as men seeth, he seeth the heart. Ninety years before this book was recorded, before the work of Nehemiah was engaged upon, brethren and sisters, Jerusalem had fallen to the desolator. She had been oppressed by the opponents, by the Gentile nations. And at that end of the period of desolation that had been forecast by Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke of the 70 years exile of that period, Ezra, a priest, had been sent to the city of Jerusalem. He had been ordained to assist in the building and the development of the temple and its worship. He had brought a measure of inspiration to the people. He had brought a sense of renewal as the straggling, struggling exiles came back from Babylon to resettle and re-establish their homes and their lives in the Holy Land. Then Ezra had gone back to Persia to report upon his work. And while Ezra was absent, without effective leadership in the land, the conditions had deteriorated. Now, 13 years after Ezra had gone back to Persia, another man of destiny, this man Nehemiah, was divinely roused up for this important work. Nehemiah was a pioneer. God had called him to labour. He was a man with a single mind. His mind was the dignity and destiny of Jerusalem. And though he laboured in his occupation in the regal palace of Persia far away, his mind was always upon the hope of Israel. He could see afar off. His vision was for the joy that was there, for his father's honour, the honour of Yahweh, his God. He gave him no prayer night nor day till Yahweh had made Jerusalem a name and a praise in all the earth. That was where his heart was while he laboured in the king's palace. And though his, he was far absent, his heart was in the city of his fathers. He was always preoccupied, Nehemiah. Recognising the, the, the exile of his people, he was preoccupied with Jerusalem. He longed for the, time to, the set time to favour Zion, Psalm 102. And he found no delight in the court of the Gentiles, though it was necessary for a time. That's the person that's pleasing to God. That's why Nehemiah was chosen and selected by God for a high honour. As a king priest in his labour, because his heart was set on Zion, not in South Africa, not in Australia, not anywhere else except Zion. And his emotions, as we have looked at it earlier this morning, but if we'll look again in chapter 1 verse 3, his emotions were terribly upset by the report of his brother. Verse 3 of chapter 1. Hanani came and said, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates thereof are burned with fire. What a terrible report from his brother. Devastation. Blackness, ruin, 
smoke. That was the truth. That was where Nehemiah's heart was. And that was the report that came to him. And he was emotionally and physically affected by the, by the effect of this report of his people. His care was for the lambs of God's, uh, uh, of God's flock. And he was worried out of his life, brethren and sisters, when he heard reports of this situation of his people. You see, the truth requires emotion. It requires an emotion that is blended with knowledge. The knowledge of God. And then the emotion of our feelings. And with such people God can work. As, he's, as we read in verse 11 of this chapter, O Yahweh, I beseech thee, let thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name. And prosper, I pray thee, thy servant this day, and grant them mercy in the sight of this man. There's been a lot of worthy men who have had great emotional feeling for the truth. In Psalm 35 you have the feelings of David. For in the Psalms we have the heart of David expressed. As in Samuel and Kings we have his life. But in Psalm 35 and verse 10, All my bones shall say, as he records this feeling, Yahweh, who is like unto thee, which delivereth the poor from him that is too strong for him, yea, the poor and needy from him that spoileth him. All my bones say. His body was racked with pain, brethren and sisters, because he saw the destitution of the poor. And that it was only in Yahweh, his God, that could deliver that situation. And so he says in verse 13, As for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. Who's speaking? The king on his throne. King David. He was prepared to bear sackcloth and ashes that he might have a fellow feeling with his people. I humbled my soul with fasting. My prayer returned into my own bosom. There is the emotion, the stress of David expressed for us as he would have us understand his feelings. In Daniel chapter 10 and verse 2 and 3, Daniel the prophet himself found similar experience. And being a man of God, he too felt the impact of the circumstances of the truth in his life. Daniel chapter 10, verses 2 and 3. Concerning a vision that he had understanding of and he knew it was for a long time, he said in verse 2, in those days he wanted to uh, have an elaboration of those visions. He wanted to understand why. In those days I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks I ate no pleasant bread, neither flesh nor wine came to my mouth, neither did I anoint myself at all until three whole weeks were fulfilled. He gave himself completely over, physically, emotionally and mentally, to the work before him because he felt for it, brethren and sisters. He felt for it. The Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20 had the same emotion the same sorts of feelings for his people, as he drew to his side the elders of the ecclesia at Ephesus. He came to Miletus. He was about to see them no more, and he reminds them of his attitude among them in verse 31 of Acts chapter 20. He says, Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I ceased not to warn every one night and day with tears. And who's this speaking? That's a man with toughness. That's a man who caused fear and trembling in the ecclesias because with fire and brimstone in his mouth he went forth against the ecclesias of God to draw everyone into prison. That was a man who could endure beatings and, and scourging three times at least, more than that actually, at least four times we have record of shipwrecked. 
A man who could withstand the, the trauma and the difficulties of the rugged road of Rome as he walked up and down for his people. I cried for you. Three years I cried for you, he said, night and day with tears. These are men of strength. These are men of power and conviction. Men like Nehemiah, brethren and sisters, who had an emotion for the truth and felt it in the experiences of their lives. What a sad story came to the ears of Nehemiah in verse 3 of chapter 1. Poverty in Jerusalem, widespread. Apathetic temple services. Oppression rampant. Opportunity given for the enemies of the Jews to attack the city. Jerusalem leaderless. Deplorable condition of the city of God. So much so that many had left that city for other areas that they might seek their fortunes elsewhere. And the truth was in discard and that was the story he heard from his brother Hananiah. And in verse 4 of chapter 1, when, when I heard these words, says Nehemiah, I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed. That's the effect of news upon a loyal Israelite who hears about the things of the truth. Emotionally affected by the sad fortunes of a people in the land of their fathers. Heartbroken he was. Heartbroken as Jerusalem was in the dust. He felt the same impact in himself as he heard about his people and his city. And like the Lord Jesus when he was on the cross and saw his disciples in reproach and stricken before him. Reproach hath broken my heart. I am in heaviness. And Nehemiah sat down. We read in verse 4. He sat down. It's an expression of amazement and sorrow and depression. He sits down. And notice his progressive feeling here in this verse. He was astonished. He was heartbroken as the news affected his heart and caused him to mourn. He indulged himself in a fast, gave himself over to deprivation of luxury and enjoyment, that he might concentrate upon the dedication and determination to seek a remedy, because he knew that God had brought him that message, though it was the voice of his brother. And he prayed before the God of heaven. The God of heaven! who oversees all things, for God rules in the kingdoms of men, and he prayed, prayed for a blessing and for guidance upon what he should determine. He makes his appeal to heaven, for God, he says, rules. As he stood before the ruler on earth, he was praying to the ruler in heaven. So here is a man of prayer, here is a man who was made a man of prayer because of the circumstances of his life. He's like that man of whom we read in Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7 that with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and he was heard in that he feared. That's the feeling of this man, this man Nehemiah. And brethren and sisters, as we conclude this first session of our study, let's remember the power of prayer in life. As we go to the words of Colossians chapter 4, we leave Nehemiah for a moment as he is praying. We'll meet him again as he speaks to the king in our next session. But now we look at Colossians chapter 4 because in all these circumstances we must bring these to our own, our own environment. And we read in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 2. Verse 1. Masters. Give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that there is a master in heaven. Whatever our circumstances in life might be, we remember there is our master in heaven. Thus, continue in prayer and keep awake. The word watch means keep awake in the same with thanksgiving. How easy it is to let our minds wander when we are praying to the Father in heaven. Because we're mortal and weak and have need of strength. 
And Paul says, watch, keep awake, keep vigilant. It's the Father in heaven that you're approaching, continue in it, be instant, constantly a man of prayer. Not that we are praying all the time, but we are living with God in prayer, as it were and drawing him into our lives. Such staccato prayers. Remember me, O God, for good. And we'll see tomorrow, brethren and sisters, that Nehemiah was praying while he was working for the king in Persia. Continue in prayer. With all, in verse 3, praying also for us, that God will open unto us a door of utterance as he cooperates together. And in James chapter 5, verses 13 to 18, which we won't have time to deal with, we have the seven prayers. We may speak of these tomorrow, God willing. We have the seven aspects of prayer, the perfect prayer of James chapter 5, verse 13 to 18, that we may consider privately as we await our gathering together on the next occasion. Thank you.